Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hello, welcome to the 20th episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. We hope you enjoyed the three episodes we released last week amidst all the political chaos of Johnson going, not going, kind of going in the Tory leadership election now. And a big welcome to all our new listeners who find the show while we occupied three of the top four places in the UK podcast chart. So obviously we are going to talk about the Tory leadership, runners and riders, what it's like to be a candidate... And, of course, the burning question that every Conservative is asking whether Rory is going to give his coveted endorsement to any of the so far 11 candidates. We'll also be getting on to the assassination of Shinzo Abe in Japan, the situation in Sri Lanka, and Rory's got a lot to say about recent travels around the north of England. So, Rory, you've been up in the north. Are you quietly choosing a Northumbrian seat so you can run in the Tory leadership contest, or have you ruled that out? I'm definitely not running in the, in the leadership. But <laughs> breaking news! Bre- breaking news! Rory Stewart can announce he's he's not becoming number twenty three in the Conservative leadership. No, I've been travelling around and I've been doing a couple of amazing radio things recently. I know you've been doing this wonderful television stuff on and how to choose the next prime minister. I've been doing two things. One thing that maybe we can talk about uh, on another episode is I've been working on an amazing uh, Northumbrian. Let let me test you on this one, actually, says he being unfair, because you often test me. Have you heard of Basil Bunting? Yes, I have. In the email you sent yesterday, saying I'd like to to talk about Basil Bunting. (laughs) Well, that's good, 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 lovely that you're being honest about that. So he's an extraordinary figure in the complete revival of the northeast of England. He was an incredible poet who was quite quite an old man, was rediscovered by a young, very, very radical teenager, Northumbrian poet called Tom Pickard, and they created in the 1960s in this tower on the walls of Newcastle, a revival of poetry in the Northeast. And, and that's, that's something I'd love to talk about sometime. But the really big thing that I've been doing recently that I really want to talk about is I've been doing a Radio 4 show on the history of argument, which really relates to you and me because it's all about how you agree agreeably and disagree disagreeably. Or disagree, or disagree agreeably. Or disagree agreeably. And we start, start right back to the ancient Greeks. We do a lot on rhetoric. And then we get right up to Twitter. Uh, we have an extraordinary standoff between, you, you'll have heard of Lawrence Fox and Ash Sarkar. They end up in the radio studio with me uh, in an amazing tussling argument about Twitter. We've got Labour MPs on, we've got ex-Conservative MPs on, we have people from the, 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 the bigger fringes of stuff, and then we've got some amazing analysts of the way that social media works. And I guess the case that we're trying to make is that if there is any way of saving our democracies, we're going to have to learn to argue better. Well, that's very good. I mean, there's a slight problem with this, Rory, is that 
our podcast is doing so well, as I say, three of the top four last week. And part of that is because people are turning away from radio. You're trying to revive radio now when podcasts are the future. But what are you doing, man? Well, well the lovely thing is that it's beautifully neat, though, because when our podcast goes out next Wednesday, shortly afterwards, at one o'clock on Radio 4... On the 19th of July, everyone's going to be able to hear the first episode of the History of Argument. So we've how, got many, a- how many plugs for the podcast are in it? Uh, <laughs> so, so far, as many as there are plugs for this amazing BBC Radio 4 show on the podcast. <laughs> I got, I got uh, uh, Fiona Bruce told me off last week because, well, she told me off for interrupting the other guests too much on Question Time, but also I'd been sort of baiting you for failing to mention the podcast on uh, when you were on question time recently and i actually it was a member of the audience who first raised the podcast so i really felt that was better than me sort of going up front and doing it but is is it true that with your amazing dark arts you'd actually organize a member of the audience to mention the oh, podcast rory please please let's just let's just draw the veil draw the veil this is a this is a calumny against <laughs> against natural spontaneity i've got to say by the way last week before we get onto the troy leadership one of them Nadim Zahawi, I do think it was one of the most bizarre attack lines I've ever come across, that he, when the Johnson was falling apart, Zahawi literally went round the studios one by one and said that basically this is my fault and that nobody should listen to me. It was one of the most bizarre things. So for for people who haven't followed this, it really was extraordinary. Um, I think it would actually be difficult to miss if you were following it on television radio because Nadim Zahawi did it again and again. He basically, his pitch to say that people shouldn't be turning against Boris Johnson was to say that if they were, they were teaming up with Alistair Campbell and that somehow getting rid of Boris Johnson was an Alistair Campbell plot. Actually, it was deeply flattering towards Alistair, slightly insulting towards me because I felt I wasn't getting enough credit. But I think that, <laughs> I think that, I think the backstory on this is that I'd been quite complimentary about Nadim on the show. So somebody had encouraged him to listen to it and he obviously had never heard the rest is politics podcast before. And he and I are actually friends. So I think there's some very complicated psychological stuff going on. I think what may have happened is that he may have tried to listen to the show, looking for the moment where I say something nice about him. Meanwhile, he would have heard the full force of Alistair <laughs> under full sail and been so traumatized that for the next 14 hours, he couldn't get your voice out of his head. Very odd. Very, very, very odd. Now, listen, most importantly, where did you find your ring? Is it the pinky ring it's, from it's your dad? It's the pinky ring that my wife gave me. Yeah, yeah. It's the very same that we've talked about on the show. And it, it's it's so, j- just very quickly for readers, I was in Buxton in Derbyshire. Listeners, I, listeners, Rory, they're listeners. Listeners, listeners. listeners. <laughs> Buxton in Derbyshire. I was um, uh, giving a talk at Buxton Festival. It's a great, great event in Derbyshire. And somewhere between giving an event, a talk on the stage in the Opera House and walking down St. John's Road, my ring disappeared because by the time I got to the car, my wedding ring had gone. Anyway, I put this out on social media and four and a half million people saw the tweet. And I think literally hundreds of people very, very kindly walked up and down St. John's Road, some of them with metal detectors trying to find the ring. Very generous police officer who is a great fan of the Rest is Politics podcast. I'd like to put a shout out to because he also put a lot of time and energy into trying to see if they could find the ring. So I'm feeling very grateful towards people of Derbyshire. But to be honest, after nearly four and a half million people got involved and hundreds walked up and down the road, I'm not sure whether it's going to be found. 
Well, it was also, I mean, I, 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 I think this is the podcast effect again, Roy. I think we're creating a sort of media monster in you. You're getting all these radio programs. You're getting all this stuff to do. Uh, but the radio, the radio actually, programs were even before you asked. Okay. But it was, but, but it was, <laughs> it was actually you losing your ring was, was a thing on the front page of the BBC News website, for God's sake. Roy yeah, Stewart I, appeals for lost ring and 4.5 million people answered the call. Yeah, no, I think that is the point at which there must have been what's called a very, very, very slow news day. But if anybody ever finds it or is offered it at a jeweler's, happy to offer a reward, it's got a very distinctive cross on the front of it. It's sort of, it's a circle with a cross in it, and it's it's gold. Is your wife cross with you? No, she's 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 lovely about it. Absolutely lovely okay. about it. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Have you ever, you've never lost a wedding ring? No. We've never had a wedding ring. Oh, never had a wedding. Of course, Alistair. We should get into that sometime because you've no, had this, I'm, I'm, you've I'm had this non- very stable relationship for a very long time, but you never decided never to get married. Is that right? Well, we've got, we've got a civil partnership, but I mean, we, we, I, I don't wear jewellery. I don't wear a watch. I've never understood the jewellery thing at all. And as you know, Rory, I don't get the pinky ring thing. You, you, you think, all. you think it's a class piece it's, of class for? It's on a par with sending your kids to, um, to a private school or not knowing what the difference between rugby union and rugby league is, unless you look it up on Wikipedia just before we talk about Basil Bunting. Now, shall we talk about, <laughs> shall, we, shall we talk about the, this wretched Tory leadership contest? I mean, I, this is the, my favorite question of the, do you know, we had over a thousand questions this week, but my, my favorite, I'm actually having to look it up because I've forgotten the guy's name is already. Who is Raymond Christie? <laughs> So Raymond Chishti, uh, let, let's let's. Oh, Chishti, sorry. Yeah, Raymond Chishti is a really, really interesting example of this race. So people who haven't followed, Raymond Chishti has suddenly popped literally out of nowhere and announced that he wants to be a candidate to be the the leader of the Conservative Party. So far, Mr. Chishti, as far as one can tell, has no endorsers. I mean, he hasn't got a sing, single person, um, and he needs twenty of them to qualify for the next round. And he made this selfie, and I feel slightly responsible for this, because during the last Tory leadership, I went around doing dodgy selfies. But this is a very dodgy selfie. It's his leadership video launch. I think he's propped it on the grass in the back garden at home. So it's sort of looking up his nostril. And he he doesn't quite sort of time it right. It maybe runs out of battery or something, because the end of it goes, there are, I think, something like, I'm sort of remember trying to remember, but something like, there are three things which are great about Britain. It's resilience. It's create. <laughs> but, but Roy, let's try. Let's try and get inside his head. You say he's quite clever. He's quite interesting. He doesn't remotely think when you when you went for the leadership. Yeah. You you said to me before you genuinely thought you could win. Yeah. There's no right. point in doing it if you don't. No. Yeah. He doesn't. He please tell me he doesn't think he can win. No, I'm afraid he may think he can win. I think that's the problem here. <laughs> I think it's possible that uh, this is something I really believe that something amazing, like probably a hundred, hundred and fifty of the MPs think they should be prime minister. I, I've been called by a surprising number of, of friends who are in parliament asking me whether I think they should run. Raymond wasn't one of them. Raymond was not one. Was not one of them. Nadim did Nadim phone you? No, I, th- I think he's he's somebody who's who's been confident that he should run. But I'm talking about people who aren't in the running. So you could have had nearly double the list. So Raman Chishi, just, just on him for a little bit more, though, to develop it. He's a fascinating figure. His father, I think, uh, came over from Pakistan, was an imam. So he was a, a preacher. Rahman was very close to Benazir Bhutto and very involved in the People's Party politics of Pakistan. 
And then I think I'm right in saying ran as a SDP or Lib Dem candidate against the Tories in an, an election, maybe as recently as 2005, and then came in in 2010. He's really struggled to find his feet. So he's been in, I suppose, 11 years, only just managed to become a minister in the latest reshuffle. In other words, I think he only made it in after all those resignations that happened uh, just just before our show, uh, just after our show last week. So he's been in, in, in office as a junior minister for something like, I think, six days now. So how many of the, I think we're at 11 now, I don't know, it might be more. Um, how many of them do you think have a genuine prospect of getting into the final two? I think with the exception of Rahman, the others are much, much more plausible candidates. So most of the others are people who've been cabinet ministers. Or in the case of Tom Tugendhat, he isn't, isn't a minister. And that's something that people will point out, that he's a guy who's really made a big reputation for himself as chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. The exception maybe in that rule, although she's had some pretty impressive endorsers, is Kemi Badenoch. So Kemi Badenoch is very interesting. She's a young uh, British Nigerian woman, age 42. And she's not been uh, in the cabinet at all. But she managed to get a very early endorsement from Michael Gove, who's a, quite a big beast in conservative politics, leadership candidate himself, twice over, one of the big architects of Brexit, obviously, from our point of view, signal boo on the pantomime show. But he's he's come out for another another guy called Neil O'Brien. I mean, mm. one of the ways, what I suppose I'm getting to is one of the ways that I might think about this is to look at the list of endorsers. And there's quite, if people are interested in the real geekery of this, the New Statesman's tried to provide quite a detailed list of who's endorsing who. There's a less accurate version on Wikipedia with some terrible information. And somebody's tried to claim that Greg Clark, who's very, very much from the uh, more moderate centre part of the party, they've tried to put him down as a pretty Patel endorser, which I can absolutely assure you he is not. Um, uh, but the endorsers are a good way in because it, it gives you a sense, for, for me at least, who are my friends backing? Who are they taking seriously? And who are the people, you know, Suella Braverman, for example, there's nobody on her list that, that I'm, I'm particularly close to. So can we say, so some, somebody like Suella Braverman, can we, can yeah. we just rule her out? Uh, no. Uh, we, I mean, if you mean, I mean, I definitely would want to rule her out as prime minister, but if you mean, can we be certain she won't make it through? No, we can't, because she's got Steve Baker and the ERG, which is a very formidable mm. force on the right of the party that, that put, put the hard Brexit together lining up behind her. One of the things, of course, that is very, very interesting in this is the very high number of people from Black, Asian, minority ethnic backgrounds. Kemi yeah. Badenoch, Sajid Javid, Rishi, Rishi. Sunak, Nadim Zahawi, Swala Braveman, and Rehman Chishti, although I think we should be taking him a little bit less seriously. Yes, yeah, so that's actually more, that's actually, and Pritchard Pritch Patel's in there, that's more than half. So that, that is pretty impressive. And in some way, it's a testimony to David Cameron, who I've got a lot of grumbles with. But many of these people were brought into the Conservative Party in 2010 by David Cameron, who wanted to make a more diverse party. By the way, we should put your new statesman thing in the show notes, because that sounds quite interesting. My, my, the other Rory in my life, my son Rory, he was sent me a thing this morning. Uh, it was a list of all the favourites at the start of all the historical leadership contests. And it was amazing how many of the favourites did not win. Oh, that's very good. That's that's yeah. really helpful. So you, your your son, the the other Rory, 
Here's the Rory. You the are Rory. the other Rory. The, yeah. I'm the other Rory. <laughs> the Rory is, is very interested in, in odds, isn't he? And probabilities yeah. and all this kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. And he's pointed to this extraordinary fact, which is the things that everybody will be excited about, the people that everyone will be excited about at the start. So classically in conservative politics, it's been in recent elections. These will be big names. People remember Michael Heseltine, Michael Portillo, Ken Clark. These people, Willie Whitelaw against Mrs. Thatcher. Absolutely. Whitelaw was five to four. Five to four. Wow, mm. wow, wow. And, and Mrs. Thatcher, was, Margaret Thatcher was, was, was much, presumably much less likely to win. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So that's interesting. And, and I guess that's bad news. If that historical trend continues, that's bad news, presumably for Rishi Sunak, who seems to me is the only one who is at least trying to have a kind of grown-up message, even though his message is not that grown up, because he's also making lots of false promises and, and so forth. But I'm finding this contest, the idea of this thing running until September the 5th is doing my head in. I mean, I've not heard any of them talk about poor people yet. I've not heard any of them talk about climate change. I've not heard any of them say that they would they would do anything to fix the Northern Ireland peace process, because they're hooked on this ridiculous protocol. And even the moderates like Tom Tugendhat and they're all saying that they're backing this ridiculous Rwanda policy. So what it shows is we're completely enthralled now to these very old right-wing Tory party members. They're yes, deciding yes. the future of the country. Exactly, Alistair. So just, just to remind remind listeners that the, the reason this is happening is structural. This is why we need to change the structures of British politics, I believe. So these guys have got two beauty contests they've got to pass. The first is they've got to win enough MPs to make it into the last two. So they've got to get the endorsements of the MPs. And, you know, they, one of the reasons you won't be seeing much of them in the media, won't be coming on shows like ours, is that they feel at this stage all they've got to do is try to win over enough of those 350 MPs to make it through. At the moment, they're trying to get 20, which is their threshold to qualify to the next round. How many are already beyond that? Uh, Rishi Sunak. Oh, very few. I think Tom Tugendhat. I think I, I, I'm not sure. Tom may just have touched it, but the only ones who are comfortably through at the moment, I think Rishi Sunak's comfortably through, Penny Morden comfortably through. Tom's just just crossed twenty, so he'll qualify. And actually, we, we should. While I'm talking to you, I'm just going to pull up this figure because I think it's quite quite useful because it gives us all these figures. Just while you're doing that, though, I mean, presumably, presumably you have experience of this. Some of them won't be telling you the truth. Absolutely. So trying to do it off, off public endorsements. But you're completely right that many of them will be claiming that they've got this stuff in place and they really haven't got it in place at all. Is it possible, for example, that there will be people who have publicly declared for somebody but actually won't be voting for them? Is that possible? Oh, yes, because it's a secret, secret ballot. And in fact, it's, it's something that um, I was able to benefit from during the leadership which is that people who felt terrified of Boris Johnson, they've, he was, he's the exception to the real Rory's rule, which is that he was the favourite from the beginning and came through and had this very, very aggressive campaign run by Grant Shapps, actually, who's one of, the, one of the candidates at the moment. But some of those people voted for me in the secret ballot, but publicly were declared for Boris Johnson. Mm, mm. So, so there'll, be, there'll be a lot of trickery going on. So they might not make it some of them who've got even 20 publicly declared might not actually make it through. And Rory, do you not think there's a problem for the Conservative Party with the public? Who We've just had this whole sort of psychodrama on and on and on about Johnson. Of course, it's, it's carrying on with him sort of squatting in checkers and doing his resignation honours and all the sort of stuff that's going to come out, particularly about Lebedev, which I think, by the way, is going to get worse and worse for him. But 
I just think the public must be looking on at this and think, look, we got rid of that guy because we couldn't trust a word he says. And now we're into this thing where most of them are talking absolute fantasy nonsense that they don't believe about spraying around tax cuts or we can fix Brexit or we can, you know, all the sort of stuff that they're talking about, ignoring a lot of the real issues. And I think whoever emerges from this could start off in, in an incredibly weak position. And it's almost like a parallel universe. The Conservative Party and the Conservative papers are convincing themselves that this is like a breath of fresh air. But I think it's sort of adding to the terrible, stale smell around the Conservative Party. You're completely right. I think that this is one of the ways in which modern politics, uh, but also one of the ways in which Boris Johnson has damaged the Conservative Party, because the lesson that people will have taken from the 2019 election is that he won by making promises he couldn't deliver. You know, he promised huge tax cuts, and of course, he increased tax. He promised he had an oven-ready deal that would cause no problems in Northern Ireland. And of course, it did cause incredible problems. But he got away with it in the short term in getting through the election. And I think we talked about this when I rewatch my appearance against Boris Johnson in the leadership debate. So when you, I was you, down, have, you haven't done it again, have you? I, I've not done it again, but but <laughs> but but I've been thinking about it because it's exactly these issues, and I'm trying to do what you're suggesting here on the show, which is that I spent the whole of that campaign. I talked about what made me ashamed about poverty, what made me ashamed about prisons in Britain. I talked about compromise and moderation. I said I wasn't going to deliver a hard Brexit. I refused to promise tax cuts. I tried to point out that the other candidates were increasing spending and dropping taxation, and they had a £74 billion black hole in their finances, and it got me nowhere. Well, it didn't get you nowhere. It didn't get you nowhere. You actually were the kind of Tugendhat figure. I mean, you did sort of emerge quite strongly, but your point is you, you couldn't win on that platform. I couldn't win on that platform, and they will have taken the lesson. I mean, you know, I don't think I, I'm that important to them, but I think the more general lesson they will have taken, which is that my attempts to say, okay, I'm going to speak truth, obviously, people listening are going to understand that you can't promise tax cuts when we don't have any money and when mm. public services are broken and when we need to put more investment in, mm. didn't really work out. And, and they will have done very careful focus groups and opinion polls, which will mm. have told them that the Conservative Party is very, very attached to tax cuts. I mean, it, it's... Um, but they used to be, they, in fact, they used to be attached to the idea of being a party of economic credibility. That's going. I thought before, I think we should, before we go to the break, you should give us a sort of line by line on each one of them. But let me just, before we do that, I thought it was interesting and sensible that Keir Starmer actually made quite an important speech about the economy yesterday. And I remember there were lots of people, there were lots of people saying, why on earth is he sort of making a speech now when the Tory party is tearing it to bits? But I think that was the right time to do it because I actually think that, I've noticed historically how hard it is for the Labour Party to get heard when the Tory party is having a leadership contest. And I actually think Keir Starmer, particularly with his message about the importance of growing the economy, while this lot of spraying around unfunded pledges, I thought was quite a sensible piece of politics. Very smart, because, of course, that there is, a, as I keep saying, this gaping hole in the centre ground of politics. And it's partly about being able to talk confidently about the environment but it's also about being fiscally responsible. That, that, that's the whole point of our favourite teals in yeah, Australia. Australia and, yeah. and, and I think, you know, people who are left-leaning slightly forget that they're, they're blue-green because their blue bit is that they're fiscally responsible. And I mm. think if the Conservative Party begins to lose, as it was under Boris Johnson, a reputation for fiscal responsibility, that is a huge 
hole. Mm. I saw, I, I, I saw, tell you, I, I, I saw Keir, he's my MP and lives near us, and I saw him the other day, and I get the feeling, I, my sense of him, he has become a lot more confident about the possibility of winning. And that is incredibly important in politics. You, you, it's like you were saying about these candidates. If you wake up and you feel you can win, you are more likely to do the things that take you to that destination. And I, and I sensed a real confidence that I hadn't necessarily sensed before. I think it may be time for us to go into the break, but after the break, maybe we will have a little chance just to romp through the candidates because some of them, some of them um, are pretty colourful and some of them may disappear quite soon if they don't make the threshold. But thank you so much and into the break. Cool. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Restless Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Rory, I think you should just, let's go through them very, very quickly, one by one. Sooner. So, so well, I've got, got a little list here. So, oh, you've done a list. You've done preparation. I've got a little list. I've, I've tried to do a bit of work for you for once. I'm not, not as diligent as you with you going through the thousand questions, but I've done a little list. So first one we talked about briefly before the break, Kemi Badenoch, Nigerian British woman, British Nigerian woman, who went, actually was at school in Nigeria till she was 16. Very young. So she and Rishi Sunak, who you mentioned, both just 42. They will be the youngest prime ministers in nearly 200 years of British history if they become a party leader. And and that's really amazing. I mean, it's amazing how and, and they've been in parliament a remarkably short time. I mean, they came in in 2015, very, very young people. And so this will be extraordinary. Yeah. What was Dave? How old was David Cameron? He was a year older than that when he came in, and he was the youngest in 200 years. And before that, I guess Tony Blair was the youngest. So Tony was 43, yeah. So if politics seems to be just, uh, it's, it's starting from Tony Blair through David Cameron. We've gone into an era where people are, seem to be expecting much, much younger people. Our leaders, you know, obviously, as you can see, I mean, we've felt it with Macmillan or Churchill, or, but also with Jim Callaghan and people. We, we had much older mm. leaders in the past. It, it would have been very, it'd been, completely inconceivable for somebody who came, was elected for the first time in 2015 and who was 42 years mm. old to have become mm. the leader of the Conservative Party. Has, has, has Kemi Badenoch got anything to say beyond the culture war stuff, which is what seems to me is coming through from her? I think she's on the right of the party. She's Sorry, I mean, the, the answer is she's on the right of the party and she is trying to do something which could work, which is she's definitely a very likeable contemporary figure. She feels much more modern than many bits of the Conservative Party, while at the same time being on the right. And I think that is a quite a sort of powerful mix. It's something that you see sometimes emerging in the United States. Um, uh, but obviously, it's not my kind of politics at all. She was a, an enormous number of these people are Brexit voters. That, that's another thing which is very striking, that the Although the last leadership race, which was only three years ago, was completely dominated by people who voted 
uh, remain. It's now a world in which almost all the candidates, I suppose, with the exception of Tom Tugendhat, Jeremy Hunt, and Sajid Javid, uh, and and uh, and and Liz Truss, may I say, and Liz Truss, although she's become a very very fierce Brexiteer since. Well, she hasn't become a very fierce Brexiteer. She has decided that that is the thing to be. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Kemi Begnock first, probably at the moment, got only about 13 endorsements. And remember, it's 20 they've got to cross. So quite a lot of these people could drop away quite soon in this funny derby race. Mm. Suella, Suella Braverman, we've talked about already, probably 11 endorsements. Jeremy Hunt, not doing so well at the moment, it seems, on the public endorsements. Again, maybe down at about 13. He, of course, was the man who was the one would have thought would be the front runner. He was the guy who was the runner up to Boris Johnson last time round. Very distinguished career, been in politics ten years longer than many of these people. Roy, was, we don't yeah, have we don't have time to fully rebut very distinguished career, but carry on. God, well, anyway, he was a foreign secretary, and that's a much bigger deal than many of the other people that are that are running in this race. And was David Cameron's? Uh, David Cameron used to predict that he would be the next prime minister, and it's a sign. If, as it seems, the tide is moving away from him and he may not even qualify through, which is how the numbers are looking at the moment, mm. that's a real sign of changing times. But, but Rory, I think this this point about them not telling the truth, you see, I, I thought, for example, they're all trying too hard. So like all of them coming out and saying we back the Rwanda policy when we know deep down that he probably thinks it's terrible or that, you know, he, he was talking about the doctrine of necessity in relation to the, the, the breaking international law and the Northern Ireland Protocol. I don't believe for a second that he thinks that. Or saying that Esther McVeigh would be his deputy prime minister. I think these things lose him support at this stage. I think people think you're not credible. I, I think that's that's right. And I think the, the so Esther McVeigh, as, as people listening probably will know, is a very much a right wing Brexiteer. Uh, and it will will be seen definitely for people like me as a very, very odd decision to announce that he's going to put her in as his deputy prime minister. Obviously, he's doing it because he's desperate to shore up Brexit votes and he's hoping mm. she can bring people in behind her. But she hasn't brought that many people mm. in behind her so far. She's brought in her good friend, Philip Davis, but otherwise she's not really delivering for him. And I think it was something I did worry about with Jeremy Hunt last time round too, when he started saying that, you know, if he couldn't get a deal, of course, he'd take a no-deal Brexit and stuff, or that he was going to double defence spending, which meant, you know, adding... Forty billion pounds to the budget. These are things I think people panic in the last moments, and they hope. Remember what they're trying to do desperately is get these MPs on board. And as they're looking at their numbers stagnant, am I going to qualify? Am I going to make it through twenty? They feel under more and more pressure to try to make rash promises, mm. win attention, and that's one of the reasons it's it's very dangerous because once they've made their promises, unless they're Boris Johnson, of course, he didn't care what he said, but most of the rest of them will feel forced to, to do it. Well, Pat McFadden in the Labour Treasury team, I think he put out a thing the other day, they're, they're up to about £250 billion worth of spending promises between them. That's unbelievable, isn't it? So next, Sajid Javid. Again, I mean, I'm very fond of Sajid. He's, he's one of the, I think, one of the good guys in conservative politics, but it doesn't quite feel as though he's got the momentum I thought his speech was terrific when he uh, resigned from Boris Johnson's cabinet. And I think it's it's a tribute to him that he is one of the few people who resigned actually twice from <laughs> Boris Johnson's cabinet. But he's also just a he's just a, a, a nice guy. He's a decent, nice man. And I'm it, but it doesn't quite seem as though he's got the momentum. With him and Rishi Sunak, will it be a problem for them with the sort of the Johnson diehards? that they both seem to me like, I mean, there's no way that Rishi Sunak video was done overnight. And likewise, Sunak's 
launch and speech. They'd obviously been planning this for some time. Does that get held against them or is that just seen as sort of, you know, the rough and tumble of politics? I think that's the rough and tumble of politics. I think that, that it's it's been assumed that everybody's had these things planned for a long time. In, in the, with Theresa May leadership election, I mean, I tried to go from a standing start in April and discovered that some of these people have been at it for well over a year, <laughs> had all their funders in place, had all their people in place. So I think, I think actually in a way, there'll be a sort of grudging respect for the slickness of what Rishi Sunak did, particularly since some of the other leadership campaign video launches are incredibly amateur and embarrassing. Penny Morden having Oscar Pistorius in her leadership video and also uh, Peacock, the British, the great British athlete, Paralympian, who's immediately said, I don't want to be in this. Thank you very much. That was not good. No, no, no. And some of them, I, I, Penny, I'm afraid it, there was a bit of that, that the, 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 the images in the video never quite tied in with the speech. There was a, a couple of very odd moments. One of them was we're going to go and uh, choose the next Tory leadership candidate. And then it was very sort of literal minded. There was then a picture of a ballot box and somebody sticking <laughs> something in the ballot box. And, and then later on, they said, she said something like, we need to think about the future, but we need to also think about the people who came before us. And then suddenly there was an image of Mrs. Thatcher popping her head out of a window and waving. <laughs> anyway, she's, she's Penny Morden. Penny Morden has definitely qualified. And, and I, you know, I, I, I was sincerely complimentary about her last week. I think she is somebody who um, is a grown-up, sensible person, and somebody that I would be much more comfortable becoming prime minister than someone else. Is she? Is she one of the ones who's been at it for over a year? Yes, she will have been at it for a very long time because people thought about her running in 2019. So she she will have had nearly three years to think about it, and she she was pretty badly treated by Boris Johnson because she'd been a cabinet minister under. Theresa May, she'd been actually quite a distinguished defence secretary. But because she supported Jeremy Hunt in the leadership, he very vindictively demoted her to being a, a junior minister and didn't really use her properly. Now, now, now that you've said it twice, yeah. Rory, you've got to get over this Tory thing about anybody who served in office has a distinguished career. <laughs> Jer- Jeremy Hunt did very little as foreign secretary. Um, Penny Morden was defence secretary at the time that our defences, as we discussed last week, were being shredded to the point where our entire army can be fitted inside a football stadium. So I think we've just got to get over this idea that because they served, in particular with Johnson, which was probably the worst cabinet in our history, let's drop the distinguished well, well, for, for, fortunately, I, I'll take, I'll drop the distinguished. Fortunately, neither of them served in Boris Johnson's cabinet, which I think is a real tick for them. The, I agree, <laughs> I agree with They that. were ministers under, under David Cameron and then under, in Theresa May's cabinet. But you said pretty much the same about Sajid. Sajid was very distinguished as this. Oh, yeah, that no, that's other. true, that's true. I suppose what I should say is, I'll stop saying distinguished, but what, what I suppose I mean is they have big senior cabinet jobs. And that's one of the differences between some of these candidates. Some yeah. of them are young people like Kemi Badenoch who are on the way up. Others are people who were, I, I suppose, more big beasts in the conservative jungle. Pretty Patel is obviously a big beast in the conservative jungle. She's definitely not my type of politics. It's very much a um, a right wing slate behind her. There's there's nobody I can see supporting her who really would be the kind of people that that I would be following. Um, Grant Shapps, uh, an unusual run. So far, seems to be only about eight endorsements, so he may not make it through. Um, he's a communicator. I mean, he's he's good. He's pretty good on telly, or can be pretty good on telly and radio. But he's um, somebody who dedicated himself to taking down Theresa May and bringing in Boris Johnson, for which I find it difficult to forgive him. Mm, mm. How much of the so you take something like him, right? You say he's got eight votes. How much yep. of the other candidates, the Sunaks? 
and maybe Penny Morden and yep. maybe Tom Tugendhat. Yep. And we yep. haven't talked about Liz Truss yet, so we yep. should come on to her. Yep. But how much, of, when you're already through the 20, how much of time the Rishi Sunak's team now spent in targeting the votes of those who've endorsed the ones who they know are going to fall? A, a lot. So I had a spreadsheet when I was running where I had every single endorsement for every other candidate. And every time somebody dropped out, we would then move very quickly. I had the WhatsApps already written so that at the moment that Matt Hancock, for example, dropped out because he was very much trying to run on the center left of the party, my WhatsApps went up and I picked up, I think, uh, 65% of his vote within two hours when he dropped. Wow. So they, they will be, I'm sure, thinking in the same way. And would Tom Tuganat, for example, would he think it was even worth chasing after people who were backing Pritchett Patel? Um, he'll try because in order to win, you've got to believe you can get the full party. But my guess is he won't get any of them. And I certainly never managed it. You know, I, I tried, for example, what one of the reasons that um, very actually playing sort of silly counterfactuals, but if Sajid Javid had been beaten by Dominic Raab in, in, and it was very close, Sajid, I think, just qualified by one vote to go through to the final round against uh, our TV debate. If he'd failed to get that one vote, um, I probably would have picked up a lot of Sajid Javid's support and then gone into second against Boris Johnson almost immediately. Mm. Mm. But because Dominic Raab dropped and Dominic Raab was on the right of the party, all of his vote went to Boris. So what, and what, and what sort of things were you saying? What sort of things were you saying to Hancock supporters? Were you, were you being flattering? Were you being, were you making promises? Were you saying things they wanted to hear? What sort of messages would you send? I think at that stage, getting quite tough and saying, for goodness sake, you say that you care. So I was particularly cross, for example, with a very senior MP called Damien Green, who'd been the chair of Hancock's campaign. I said, you know, you are a quintessential One Nation conservative. Like me, you can see that Boris Johnson is a monster. Like me, you are going to want to try to get a moderate Brexit done. I am the only candidate. I had the same argument with Sam Jima saying to him, you cannot possibly believe that any of the other people are going to deliver anything like a moderate Brexit. You're going to have mm. to come on board. But it, it's a tough argument. I lost some of these arguments. Mm. Mm. Um, Damien Green actually went over to support Boris Johnson. And mm. because people will be thinking about jobs, and the number one question they'll all be asking themselves when you have these conversations is, is this person going to win? Because if they're not going to win, they're not going to give me a job. Is it really, is it really as awful as that? They basically, it's all about Who's going to promise them a uh, sort of ministerial position? Is it really as base as that? Pretty much. You'll find a few genuine, genuine idealists. So people like David Gork were happy to come along with me because he really believed it was incredibly important to make the argument for the centre of the party. People like Ken Clark, who had nothing to lose. But I remember very talented, admirable young MPs actually crying in the library saying, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, Rory, but I, I just can't do it. I've got to think about my kids. I've got to think about my mortgage. I, I'm going to have to go with Boris. But this just, this just underlines, I think, I think the public are going to get revolted by this process, seeing these people, most of whom the public have never heard of, coming along and throwing their hat in the ring, and then the sense developing that it's actually all about continuing to play the games that Johnson played and that have turned so many people off. You're right. Um, and one of the reasons I think it's we've got to be uh, serious about British politics is that I think Boris Johnson, although a terrible person, is a product of a system. Yeah. And we, we all need to take some responsibility. And I think, you know, remember, the Labour Party also needs to look at itself because it produced Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, there's something about these parties and the way mm. that these things that, that can produce these 
extremely unsuitable figures, mm. uh, either very polarizing figures or very, very ineffective prime ministers are coming through. And we really need to look at the way in which these parties and the MPs function. Now, what about Liz Truss? Okay, Liz Truss doing okay. She'll probably make the 20. But again, it's pretty much the right of the party. It's people like Quasi Quarteng coming in behind her. A couple of her personal friends. So there's a cabinet minister called Therese Coffey who's been very close to her for many years. Um, some of her junior ministers from the Foreign Office. Chloe Smith, another another close friend of hers from, from her part of the country. So you'll, you'll get, if you really want to get into the horrible, nerdy weeds of this, some of this is geographical. Some of this is, mm. is neighbours going with you friends you used to do in the case Therese Coffey did karaoke parties with Liz Truss for many years. But basically, she's picking up the right of the party. As you say, she's reinvented herself from somebody who was a Cameroon who voted Remain into being more on the Brexit wing of the party. I, 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 I find the Thatcher channeling very, very difficult to stomach. I mean, I knew Margaret Thatcher. I covered Margaret Thatcher as a journalist for years. And though I disagreed with a lot, I, I was never anything other than a little bit scared in her presence. And I've not felt that with many politicians. I just see Liz Truss as sort of lacking any real credibility as a political figure. Although it's interesting, looking at the front pages, I was just flicking through the BBC News website and they're looking at the front pages. I see that the Mail, which presumably is, you know, Dacre still, you know, desperate to get at this resignation period, honours peerage, and so therefore talking about Johnson betrayal the whole time. But I see their front page today is Johnson supporters uh, talking about backing Truss to stop Sunak. Yep, there's a lot of stop Sunak going on. I know we've talked about how commendable it is for the Conservative Party that half of the candidates are of colour, but how much of that do you think might be trying to appeal to people's racism? Um, it's a good question. I think the answer is the Conservative Party isn't a racist party. I mean, the fact that almost that such a very, very large number of candidates are not shows that actually that's not a big problem. But the members are not. Yeah, yeah maybe may a problem with some of the members. Absolutely no doubt at all. But I don't think that's the main thing. I think the um, I think with Rishi Sunak, it's partly envy. He mm. came very, very quickly up as a high flyer to be chancellor. I think it's also debates about tax. You'll see that a lot of these candidates are sticking the knife in on Rishi Sunak on tax and implying that if they were in, this is, you know, they're all doing it. You know, they wouldn't have the national insurance rise. They would drop corporation tax. They would. And so I think they're trying to appeal. It's, I don't think it is about that. I think it's about trying to tack to the right of Rishi Sunak and make him out as a high tax person. Mm -hmm. But but also Liz Truss was one of the ones who didn't issue a critical letter about Boris Johnson. So if you're a Boris Johnson loyalist and, and they will sense there are people out there in the country. I mean, there's a sort of almost, a, you know, obviously I'm obsessed with this stuff, but there is a kind of Trumpian element in the fact that there are people out there in the country who feel that Boris Johnson was betrayed. And there's a bit of a risk here that I mm. think we should return to in another program that he may in an egomaniacal way, think that he can somehow become the king over the water and whip up some pretty extreme, unreconcilable people into mm. trying to take back power again. So anyway, those people won't forgive Nadim Zahawi, for example. It's quite interesting how little we've talked about Johnson. I mean, it, it, the thing about politics is that once you become the past, even if you're still there, you do become the past. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's true. I do think, though, by the way, I think there are an awful lot of scandals still to come out about Johnson. And this Lebedev thing, the more I dig into it, the more I realise that I think there's a, I really think Labour should be pressing on misconduct in public office. I really do. 
I agree. I'm with you on that. Um, so just last two to do, uh, Nadim Zahawi and Tom Tugendhat. So Tom Tugendhat's obviously somebody that you and I have uh, naturally, instinctively more sympathy for. He comes from the centre-left of the Conservative Party. He never served uh, as even a junior minister under Boris Johnson. So he's got a clean sheet there. He's somebody who um, was a chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. He's very serious about foreign affairs, speaks very articulately about it. He's got some great people endorsing him. Karen Bradley, who I'm very, very fond of and who, in fact, I saw in Buxton and Derbyshire before the... A, a, very, a very distinguished culture secretary. A very distinguished <laughs> culture secretary. Very fond of Karen Bradley. But she, and she was very nice about my lost ring, so I'm feeling particularly fond of her at the moment. But he also has got big Brexiteer, Amory Trevelyan, who was a, a member of the cabinet. Big Brexit supporters come out for him. So he'll be trying to use that to show that he can reach across the party. Um, and then finally, Nadim Zahawi, who, as I say, is a friend of mine I like very, very much. And probably my saying that is why he got on the show and you got inside his head. Um, but he's been struggling with enormous numbers of questions. He's a big businessman and there's a lot of questions about his tax fares. He's issued a lot of statements where he thinks he's answered all of those, but more questions are coming. And that a lot of that actually will be thrown at him, not by the opposition, but by other candidates who are doing their best to blacken the minds of everybody else. So when I was running, the, they tried to suggest I wasn't a member of the Conservative Party. It was one of the great things. Then Boris Johnson put out a front page story, Telegraph, whole front page of Telegraph, saying that I was a, a British intelligence agent. Um, I wasn't quite sure why he thought that was damaging. but a, I, know it's a good, I know it's a good thing. I know it's a good thing. Yeah, it's a sort of James Bond image. Right. OK, now, we, we've done a lot on the leadership, obviously. Um, let's just, though, quickly... Um, Sri Lanka, Japan, anything? No, wait a minute, thinking? wait a minute, Roy. Before, before yeah. you go, you're not going to go yeah. this early. If you were still, if you still had a vote, who were you voting? No, for? not 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 endorsing yet. I'm holding back the oh, okay, amazing okay. power of the Rory okay. Stewart endorsement to keep okay. people people on. Um, go on. Now, listen. We said we were going to do Sri Lanka and Japan. I yeah. think we should. Do, I think we should maybe do those in question time, because you have got a plane to catch. You're in one airport hotel at Heathrow. I'm in an airport hotel. Uh, Dublin. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I wish I was at. He, I wish I was at. I wish I was at Heathrow. I. I, I had this classic. Where experience. are you? Where are you? Well, I'm somewhere out at the edge of Hatton Cross. So I was dragging my stupid wheelie bag through the um, through the bus terminal at Heathrow, through back a terminal two yesterday. I'd taken the tube out. I got there. It's eleven thirty at night. I got to to the little Hilton Hotel by Terminal Two, waited in line, got to check in, and then they were like, "No, nope, it's not this one." You've got oh, to get a, no. mile, a mile and a half down the road. Oh, so no. off I set with my little wheelie bag again. Yeah. And did, you, did you have one of those moments where you, I, I, I must admit, I confess I do get these moments. Uh, whenever I'm driving past RAF Northolt from where most of our travel in government used to <laughs> depart, uh, yeah. I do get you, those moments. You do, no, no, my, I, I, did, I didn't feel that the glamorous life of a podcaster was quite developing the luxury travel of which I once dreamt. No, never mind. But maybe your Radio 4 documentary will get you back on the, as, on as the people, VIP As circuit. people who listen next Wednesday at one o'clock on Radio 4, we'll discover. Right. So we should promise that question time, we should kick off with Sri Lanka and Shinjo Abe, as we did not do it in this interesting, very long discussion about what I think is going to be one of the most tedious and <laughs> toothache-inducing leadership contests. How on earth? General elections can last anything from three to six weeks. Why is it taking till September the 5th to choose a 
leader and why should they become prime minister automatically absolute outrage and a huge mistake because i think it will create incredible infighting in the conservative party and actually damage rather than invigorate ah well that's the that's the that's the upside all right rory all right thank you see you soon bye-bye everybody